If you have a Bible, if you turn to the book of Ephesians, I'm going to start a series called Our New Identity in Christ. And today we're going to look at the basis of that. I'm not having you turn to a particular verse yet, so just get in the book of Ephesians and you're good. If you want to get towards chapter 5, you'd be really good. We're going to read our text here after a bit, okay? So, but I want to go before the Lord with a word of prayer. And Father, we just thank you that you've gathered us all here together, Lord. And I just ask that you'll speak to all of our hearts today, Lord. And, and uh, you're just your hand will be on me to speak your word, that I can speak it in the right way to these people, to, to our people, our church, that we can have needs met, that people can be encouraged, convicted, whatever needs to happen, just that uh, we can grow to know you more and to draw closer to you and, and to see our standing with you and, and our identity that you've given us, a new identity. And we just thank you, Lord, that you'll do that for us and meet with us here today where two or three are gathered. You say you'll be in our midst, and we just trust that you're right here with us and speaking to our hearts. And we do that all in Jesus' name. So I was talking to an inmate a while back. He kind of pulled me aside and wanted to know if he could talk to me for a few minutes and uh, said he was struggling with anxiety and wanted to know what he could do about it. So, you know, I asked him, I said, well, are, are you a believer? And his answer was he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure if he was a believer. He said he tried to change many times, but that it had really been a struggle. So I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. What to you does it mean to be a Christian? And his answer was, well, I think I need to give up this and give up that. He named all the things he thought he needed to give up. And he says, I just keep falling back into the same problems. And he says, I just live in a constant state of anxieties. I think he was speaking of his spiritual state. And I think in a lot of ways, I can relate to that. A lot of us can relate to what he's going through in a lot of ways. So I realized that many, and all of us, I think, at one time, in one way or another, struggle with this, think that being a Christian is a reformation process, a grand exercise in self reformation, making ourselves better. And we're always working on getting better, not from a position of acceptance, but that so we will be accepted. We're worried about being accepted. And what happens then in our righteousness is based on our self, our self-righteousness, rather than we have to have our righteousness rooted and grounded in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, we think to ourselves a lot of times, I've got to get rid of this, I've got to quit doing that, and then maybe I can make it in the end. You know, we think, I have to be a certain type of person before the Lord will accept me. I had, this, I had thought about this while I was standing over there, but I remember when I first started to preach, I was so worried about being a mess up here preaching, and I probably was. That first Sunday, Brother Hamilton didn't ask me to do a Wednesday, he let me do a Sunday many years ago, and I was so nervous that I wouldn't be perfect, because... You know, like a lot of us in here, I tend to have perfectionist, you know, my attitude. I want to be perfect in everything. And he came and he saw me practicing to, to an empty room, my sermon. And he knew I was struggling. He goes, John, he goes, he goes, you're just not perfect, are you? And he didn't mean that as a put down. He just realized, look, you're not perfect. And you got to accept that you're not perfect in a lot of ways. You know, you're having trouble seeing, you're having trouble seeing your notes. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> I just always stuck with me. I was just some good advice. Because if we have to be perfect, guess what? We are never going to make it. We'll never feel accepted. We'll never quite get there. Because even Paul, Paul was like, you read Philippians 3, he's saying, he's looking, listening, all the things he did in his life, and he's saying, as far as 
outward righteousness goes, as far as the law goes, he says, I am blameless as far as zeal. I persecute the church. All of that, he's saying from a fleshly standpoint, you couldn't have it any better than the way I live. But yet, he said he'd throw it all away because it still left him empty. And especially when that law came and convicted his heart, it showed he maybe outwardly he was fine, but inwardly, only God can change the inward. And he realized that, that that's what he needed. So let me start. I want to start by asking us all a question. Why is Jesus called the great physician? You know, does a physician become great because he never heals anyone? Is that what will make a physician great? He's a great physician because all of his patients are perfect specimens of health all their life. <laughs> so what if a physician would only accept healthy patients? <laughs> what kind of doctor would that be? But sometimes I think we think in our, in our minds that Jesus only accepts the healthy and receives the healthy, those that are self-cured. And so that's like a person saying, I am going to lay in this bed. I've got this ulcer that is eating my leg away. And until it gets well, until I'm healed, I am not going to the doctor or to the great physician. I'm not going to go to him until I'm well. And does that make a lot of sense? You know, to ask it that way is obviously the answer. But here's what the Lord said about himself. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he said, I came not to call the righteous, those that don't need anything. He gave them the woes. <laughs> they were in trouble. He said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We were talking the other night, somebody said, we're all a work in progress in here, aren't we? Nobody in this room, anyone in here, has reached perfection. We all have things that God needs to work out in our lives, things we're not aware of. Sin that is in us that we aren't aware of, like Job, that trial will come and it will bring it out. And we can't get discouraged because of that. We can't get discouraged because something happens that makes you lose it and you're like, wow, I just got angry. I guess I'm not a Christian. Well, no. God's trying to show you there's something you need to work on. That's not the time to quit and lay down on him. So he calls those, he's saying, that recognize their need. Those of us that are sinners and that cannot help themselves. That's the opposite of a person who thinks, I, I need to do all these things to make myself better in the Lord's eyes. He's saying, no, no, we need to see that it's impossible for us to help ourselves. But he did say he calls sinners, those that have need of his help, to repentance, he said. See, they have this cancer, this cancer of sin, and they want to be shed of it, to use a Kentucky phrase. They want to get rid of it. They want to have healing. That is important. It's not someone that has the cancer of sin and doesn't care, and they're happy to live with it or live in it. But it's people that see, that's the ones he calls, the ones that want to be healed, that want his help, and he says he'll give it. And that brings me to the first point I want to talk about today is a person needs to see his need. You need we all either have or need to, if you're not a Christian in here today, you need to see your need before you'll come to Christ. So there must be a conviction of sin that only the Holy Spirit can reveal to you to where it's not just I'm, I'm a sinner, like everyone's a sinner, everyone makes mistakes. No, it's not that. It has to be God opens your eyes to where you see the vileness of your sin, that it's unclean and repulsive in his eyes. 
that it's an issue of blood. These physical things also point to this to a spiritual reality too. It's not that the leprosy, the issue of blood, that he's not healing all those and we trust him for all those. So that's not the point. I'm not trying to spiritualize those things. But they do point to a spiritual reality. That woman, that issue of blood, it's constantly coming forth. And no one can help her either. And that's the way it is with our sin. It's like an issue of blood. It's like a cancer. It's like a leprosy that we can't help ourselves with. Only the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit can help us. So it's not a matter of we look at leprosy, we look at our sin, any, anything like that, and say, I can reform that. I can change that myself. Only the great physician can, can do that, right? And so a person that comes to the Lord, I believe, they, at some, they in some way have to realize, I am undone. I am under God's wrath. That is all I deserve. I have got a problem that I can't help. But it's a problem I'm responsible for, and it's a problem that God is going to judge. I need I need to be delivered. I'm headed to an eternal hell. I'm wicked. I'm evil. And I not only need God's forgiveness, boy, I did, for all the things I did in my past, but I need to be changed, too. And that's what the cross is. So without a true sense of that need, if we don't see that need in ourselves, we'll never stay with the great physician. We won't stay with him. So how does this conviction come? I think the Holy Spirit brings it, and he does it in different ways. There's different ways, if you think about, for everyone in here, it's probably a little bit different. It can be a word from somebody. It can be a sermon. It could be your life just falls apart. It could be someone's praying for you. It could be actually a combination of all of that, and it probably is. Or you see somebody's holy life. I mean, Smith Wigglesworth, they said that his, just his presence one time, he went down into these mines to be around these miners. He never said a word. And they broke down in conviction. I mean, that's the person that's got the Spirit of God on them. That's never happened with me. <laughs> Maybe it's happened with some of you, but that is a holy life. And that's the way God, a lot of times, can convict people. And so what happens then, when that conviction comes that way, it becomes a burden. Just like that leper. Oh, he just wants to be delivered from that. And it becomes a burden. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, it's like the burden he's carrying on his back. And it becomes heavier and heavier. And other people, for some reason, they don't seem to notice it. They, everyone's got that burden. But it becomes real to him, and he just wants relief from that burden. That becomes his prime aim. How can I get rid of this burden of sin on my back? And the Lord sends evangelists his way. Or another way, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will make you thirsty. Because the woman at the well... He tells her, he says, hey, can you give me some water? And she's like, How? you can't get water. And he says, if you knew who I was and what I'm offering you, he said, you would ask me to give you living water. And she's like, where is this water, Lord? And you know what his answer to her is? Go call your husband. He's making her thirsty. He's exposing her life with a word of wisdom like a prophet. Was. She's like, this man knew everything about me. And so he's given her the salt tablet of conviction. Because when God comes in your life and convicts you of sin and you realize what it's doing to you, where it's sending you, you will be thirsty to find that water of life, right? No one had to force that woman to drink of Jesus. In fact, she goes back and tells the whole town. And that whole town gets saved. The thirst of conviction. But once you have that, then the second thing I would say you need to see is the remedy. I realize I'm sick. I realize I'm vile. I realize I have the cancer of sin eating my life up. What's the remedy? And the remedy is 
We talked about that last week. It's all the cross. That's God's remedy for sin, sickness, and everything that has plagued us. Jesus died in my place. So the penalty was paid for my past crimes, but we also have to see in that cross our old sinful self, that old nature that loves sin. We don't have to be taught how to love sin, how to lie, how to want to get our lust fulfilled. That was just what we're born with into this world. And we have to see that's what is going to send us to judgment. And it needs to be dealt with, and it was dealt with on the cross. It was crucified with Jesus. And because our old self was crucified, just like the cancer, just like any other thing, it doesn't have to plague us. That's what the good news of the gospel is. So Jesus died so there could be forgiveness for us. But also, just as equally important, he died so we could change. He could change us. So you can't just have the effects of the leprosy done away with and not the leprosy itself. Because what were the effects? The effects of the leprosy is the man is cut off from society. He's not allowed to worship in the temple. And ultimately, he was going to die. But what good would it have done for the Lord to get rid of all the effects but leave the man with his leprosy? What good is it going to do for the Lord to say, go show yourself to the priest, go back to the temple, go buy a new house in Jerusalem, and yet he's got this leprosy eating him away? It's almost like mocking him in a way and to try to act normal and not to cleanse him from that disease because what is the problem? The problem is the disease. Is it not? I mean, that's, his problem is the leprosy, or in our case, it would be sin. So... To draw the analogy, what good would it do to get rid of the effects of sin to give us a pardon and leave the sin itself in us is the point. So it would be like the Lord saying, well, you're pardoned. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to live forever as a troubled, wicked man. To me, that would not be good news. Would it be to you? I don't think that would be good news. So we need to see that Jesus is the full remedy for us, not only from the effects from our past, but he's also going to affect our inner nature. Forgiveness and change. He's both Savior and Lord. We need him to be both. So the third thing I want to look at or talk about is, so when you see your need, you see he's the remedy, then the third thing is we have to submit to him as the great physician. Submit to him. And really all we're talking about when we say that is to submit to him as the great physician is, that's repentance. Because as I've said too many times at prison, when, when I was a sinner, I'm walking this direction, and I am the Lord of my own life. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm setting my own limits. I'm setting how nice I'm going to be. But I'm doing what I want to do. And repentance means you turn and you say, Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. That way was heading me straight to the pit. But now I, you're the Lord of my life, and Lord, you tell me what you want me to do. That's the first thing Paul says when he gets knocked off that horse. That's the first sign of true conversion. It's no longer I'm going to do what I want to do. It's that change walking another way. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's, that's a great indication that a change has taken place. You know, so if a doctor, you go to a doctor and he tells you, hey, I see you got this serious illness and I want you to take this medicine three times a day and you need to get plenty of rest. You can choose to ignore him if you want to until Boxing Day. You're like, Boxing Day? What is that supposed to mean? Well, Boxing Day is you got this serious illness, you ignore your physician. Boxing Day is when they put you in a box and bury you. 
and you're not going to be able to ignore him anymore. What I'm saying is the third thing, we need to see that Jesus is the physician that can deliver us from the cancer of sin. And in doing that, we need to give ourselves, I mean, this is just basic things I'm saying here, I, I understand that, but we need to give ourselves wholly to him and maintain that. We got to maintain ourselves under the care of the great physician from the beginning of our Christian life clear unto the end. And that's not always easy, is it? And we haven't always all, none of us have always done that like we should. We, un we understand that and we realize that. But Jesus is Lord of everything. We cannot turn back from that commitment. That's why I say if you really see that he is the only one that can cure you and it's a lifetime cure that we're going to need under his care, if you see that, then, then you'll, that's what will keep you from turning away from him because you'll realize, I just left my only hope, the only person that can help me. So we need to never turn back and be committed to the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ forever, even if we miss it. And people, I think, will tend to get discouraged and think, man, I'm just, maybe I'm not really a Christian. Maybe this walk just isn't for me. It's for everybody else. I mean, I've been there. But even when we miss it in sin, we need to see that we need his help. And we will miss it, all of us. will continue to miss it in one way or another. Or God will show us that we're not what we thought we were. And we need to humble ourselves and go to him. And here's where, if we're not willing to admit that, if you want to think, I'm perfect, I've arrived, listen to what First John says. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, and that is a present tense, if we say that we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he goes on to say, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And listen to how he ends that. And not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when you get in that situation that brings out something in you that you realize it isn't from God, and I need help with this, then that is the time to confess that sin Go to him. He'll forgive you. And he also says, I'm not just going to forgive you and leave you the way you are. He says, here's a promise there in John. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness, all that's not right. And that's the work God's doing in us to make us his bride. It's a good thing that he's doing for us to make us holy. That's how things work. Because the devil wants us to quit. And that's what I told that inmate. I said, he just wants you to get discouraged and quit. That's what he's after because he knows then he'll have you and he'll destroy you. So like I said, we miss it. We sin. We need to see that he's our physician. We're committed to him and he is our only hope. He's the only one that's going to be able to bring us healing. And so the main thing that I want to say today is that once we see our need, see the remedy and submit to the great physician who is the Lord Jesus Christ and Submitting to him in that way, that's what faith is. That's really what faith is. And so when we exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a change takes place. Actually, I would say the change takes place, and that's why we're able to exercise faith, if you want to get technical about it. But it happens at the same time. God has to change a heart, then that heart can exercise faith, technically. But it happens at the same moment. It's basically instantaneous. What I want to say is, and what we're talking about today is, we have a new identity. And Starla was kind of, she was heading that way. I was liking the way she, what she was saying. What she said was fine. But we have a new identity. We're no longer Moses living with Pharaoh. He changed his identity, didn't he? And he says, no, I'm no longer identifying with this group of people now, the world. But no, I'm, God's opened my eyes, and these are my brethren. 
and I'm going to identify with them, even though I see that it's going to mean a life of suffering. And I, I could, he could have avoided all of that, but he changed his identity. And so when we see our need, convicted of our sins, see the remedy, and give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, when that happens and a person does that and exercises faith, a total transformation takes place. A new heart is given, and it has nothing to do, none of that has anything to do that we're doing it ourselves. It has nothing to do with us. We're not doing anything to make our life better in that sense. It doesn't work that way. Because listen to Galatians 6.15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So he's saying the fact you're circumcising yourself, trying to do all these outward things, he's saying that's not avails anything but a new creation that only God can do that starts on the inside. So you all know well enough, am I saying we can live any way we want to? We don't have to get into that today. I'm, not, I'm obviously not saying that. But you can cut yourself. You can circumcise yourself. You can pluck out your eye like we talked about Wednesday night. You can walk old ladies across the street and kiss every baby in this church. You can do all of that, and none of that will change your heart, will it? When we think about it, it really isn't going to change your heart. But what does matter is being united to the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting our lives to him and uniting ourselves to him. Then God does the changing. God, he makes the tree good, right? The leper's spots are cleansed, but he says the leopard can't change him himself, can he? Leopard can't change his spots, but they would be changed. Here's a very familiar verse. If any man... Be in Christ, in union with Christ. He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So in Christ means you're united to Christ. You're in union with him. Here you are and here he is before salvation. But when you exercise faith, you become united to him. You're joined to him. It's like a marriage vow. You say, I do to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we become literally part of his body, it says in Ephesians. We are joined to him. The one flesh relationship of a husband and wife is to point to the one flesh relationship that a believer has with the Lord Jesus Christ. He has what he has, we have. And so when we're in Christ, we have a new life. We are a new creation. We have a new name and we have a new identity. And that is what we're talking about today. I like this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, was brother, one of Brother Hamilton's favorite preachers, and I really like him. I've got a lot of his books and his biography is just amazing. But listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached up to 1980, preached a lot through the Second World War, and was just really a solid evangelical conservative bedrock in England back in the day. But listen to what he said. He said, what makes a man a Christian is that he has been born again. He has been given a new nature. He is a new creation. He is altogether different from what he was before. So what we want to say is, but we have to see this new identity before we're going to live the life. We have to understand what our identity is before we're going to live it out. So a lot of times we're trying to live something and we're not really convinced and sure and aware of what we are how God sees us. 
So you have to see your new identity. In 1 John, we taught on this a few months back. Behold, John says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And he's saying, behold, you've got to look. We've got to see what God has said he's made us. That we are now the sons of God. Look at that, he says. Behold that. So, do you see yourself as a son of God? Or do we still see ourselves as sons of the devil? Still over on that other side of the path, living that life. And that's what we need to see. Because what you believe you are and what I believe I am, that is how we will live. It really is. So, we're in Ephesians. We'll have to look at a verse here now if we can. Look in Ephesians 5, 8, if you would, please. And here's what, basically, Paul's telling them what I just said. Ephesians 5, 8, he says this to the Ephesians. He says, for you were sometimes darkness. That was in the past. He says, but now are you light in the Lord. So he tells them what they were and what they are now. And so then he says, as a result of that verse, at the end of verse 8, he says to walk as children of light. So what we're saying here is this is not like we have to just imagine ourselves being something that we're not. This is not a fairy tale for sinners. You know, that just anybody, we just, well, I'm going to tell myself I'm a son of God and you're living a wicked life. So we're not saying that. But it is a truth for the repentant. That's why I said everything I said before. So Paul is writing this letter. He writes these letters. He's assuming he's writing to people that have seen their need, seen the remedy, and given themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's doing now is, and you have the same thing in 1 John, he's trying to say, okay, I just want to tell you, this is what you are now that you've made that commitment. You need to get grounded in that. And that's what he's doing. So it's for the repentant. So Paul, actually, in this letter of the Ephesians, we're not going to go through the whole letter and you guys ought to probably be thankful because it'd probably take quite a while. And I'd, I'd hate to do that to you, at least now. But he spends three chapters, the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, if you read it, telling people what they are in Christ, telling the Ephesians. He doesn't tell them anything to do. None of the commands, none of the this is how you should live, this is how you should walk, none of that happens in the first three chapters of this book. He tells them what they are before he tells them what they do. And it's what we learn in school. He gives what's called the indicative. An indicative statement is just a statement of fact. So, and he does it through many of his epistles. It's kind of a standard way. And God even does it in the Old Testament where you look through Romans, you look through Ephesians, you look through Colossians. You look at these books, even in Romans, you don't start getting into where he's telling them what they should do. Clear up until practically chapter 8 and really chapter 12. Because he's spending all those first chapters there showing what God has brought you out of, what faith is, you're standing before him, that you're justified by faith. And that's what we have in Ephesians. He tells them, this is what you are. Don't go out trying to run around trying to live anything until you're grounded in who you are. You'd be having things backwards. So he says, when you know what you are, then you'll know how you can live because of that. That's the basis. For how you can live. So you're in Ephesians. Turn back to Ephesians 1, and I just want to go through briefly. We're not going to spend much time. I just want to look at some of these verses through these first three chapters and show this is where Paul tells them this is what you are, what you have. So Ephesians 1, verse 3, he says there, 
you are blessed. This is what you have. He says you're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. There is not a spiritual blessing that you'll ever need that you're denied, he says in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he tells them that you've been elected, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that you should be holy and without blame. Then in verse 5, he goes on to say, not only have you been elected, but God has adopted you as his children. You are a son of God. And he still has yet to tell them to do anything. He's saying, this is what you are. This is what you have. And then in verse 7, he says, you also have forgiveness, redemption through his blood, and the forgiveness of your sins. And he goes on in verses 13 and 14, at the end of verse 13 into verse 14, he says, not only that, but God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the down payment of your inheritance, the first payment. He's saying you have the Holy Spirit. And the list just keeps building up. And you go over to chapter 2 in verses 16 to 18, and he tells them there in verse 16, he says, you've been reconciled to God that, we, that he might reconcile both Jews and Gentiles onto God. And then because of that, in verse 18, it says, through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access now by one spirit unto the Father. So there is, we have access to God in prayer. And not only that, he says, you've got a new family. You're no longer a child of Adam and related to all the people of the world. In that sense, you have a new family, and that's in verse 19. He says, now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners. But now, he says, we're fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. We're members of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the great saints of the Old Testament, he's saying, that's who you're now a member of, that household, the household of the saints. He's saying, you weren't before. And then you go over to chapter 3 and verse 16, and he says here, not only that, but that Holy Spirit will give you strength in your inner man, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, and goes on to say, as a result of having that, the Holy Spirit in you, Christ will dwell in your heart by faith. Verse 17. And finally, in verse 19, he says, we can know that the Lord Jesus Christ loves us. Those are all messages in and of themselves. They could be full messages. The whole time here, he's not told them to do anything. He's saying, you just need to understand what you have, what God's done for you, and who you are. This is your identity now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would do us well to, to think about all of those things. And so after he relates all of that, look at chapter 4, verse 1. He spent three chapters telling them who they are and what they have. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, we have a big therefore. And sometimes therefore will only point back to a verse. But in this case, that therefore in chapter 4 is pointing back to everything he said for three chapters. He's saying, because of everything I've told you, now I'm going to tell you on the basis of that, since you know that, you know you're standing before the Lord, you have a responsibility as a Christian. And that's what he's saying. Therefore, verse 1, I, the prisoner of the Lord, because of all I've said, I implore you, based on what I said, to walk. Now he's saying there's something we need to do, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called. And so that word walk, we'll probably talk about that in the future a little bit, but that is basically just, it's how people live, how you walk through your day is a term we use. And it is the word walk, but it's how you go through your day and live every aspect of your life. Whether you're walking at work, 
how you walk through your house, how you walk through the school, how you walk out in public when you eat or pay bills or anything. He's saying we need to walk worthily in a manner worthy. Worthy of what? He says your calling. And what is the calling he's given us? It's the relationship that God has just explained in those previous three verses. This calling, we are called, we are redeemed by his blood. The ones redeemed by his blood is our calling. The ones he's accepted as his children. And we need to walk worthy as God's children. The one he has elected from the foundation of the world. He's saying, you understand all these things? You've been redeemed by his blood. You've been elected. You've been loved by him from the foundation. He says, we therefore, because of that, we have a responsibility now to walk worthy like you would your own dad. You don't want to embarrass your father. You shouldn't. And a lot of times you'll hear those kind of expressions used. You know, that son walks worthy of his family name. Or he's embarrassing his family name. And Paul's saying, you don't want to do that. We want to walk worthy of what we have. We want to walk worthy of the fact that we have access to our father in prayer. Worthy of the fact that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The power of the Holy Spirit. We need to walk up to that expectation. We should be different than other people in the world. And also worthy of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ loves us. He died for us. He's with us to help us through and to watch over us all through the day. And that's what he's saying there. Therefore, because of all those things, all I did was just summarize things he has in the first three chapters. That should affect our outlook and how we are consciously getting up in the morning and walking throughout our entire day. We should have that consciousness that I want to walk worthy of all these things my Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, has provided for me to walk. And I don't want to soil His name. Because the salvation of the world, my family, and my own depends on it. And so out of love for Him and, and loyalty to Him and the commitment we made to Him, that is how we're going to walk. Walk worthily. So what I want to talk about a little bit is we need to see what God has explained to us in these three chapters. And then what we're going to say is then we need to live accordingly, which is what I've been saying. So I would say it would do all of us good to take the time because uh, we're not, like I said, we're not going to go through those first three chapters. Or this would be a really long series. So I'm going to teach it in about four messages what Martin Lloyd-Jones took 20 to preach. So... I think it took him years to get through this book. And you could easily do that. There's a lot in there. So we're not going to do that. But on your own, I'd say if you're a Christian, a child of the Lord, you're planning on going to heaven. Seriously, you can't just depend on what you hear being preached from a pulpit twice a week. I would just encourage everyone, all of us, to go and read those three chapters in light of what we're saying sometime this week. And think about, look, this is what the Lord has given me. I am what this says. About. It's not for somebody else. And sometimes we can think, man, I just don't feel like I measure up like other people do. Or they're really the ones this applies to, and I hope someday it applies to me. We just need to see it applies to us now. Yeah, and accept that. As hard as it can be, sometimes it is. I'm, it is for me sometimes to think of myself that I can walk like some of these saints of old, that God looks at me like he looks at them. It's just hard for us to accept sometimes, isn't it? I think it is. But like I said, our image... And what we say and what we believe about ourselves will greatly affect and totally affect the way we live. So if we still see ourselves as the way we were, and the devil will make sure he hounds you about that by mistakes you made and you did this, you've been doing this for all your life. And even after you quote unquote got saved, he'll try to bring all that to try to discourage us. 
So there is a story of this girl. It's a true story. She was the daughter of one of the royal families of Europe. And she had a nose like mine. It was big. She had a big nose, bulbous nose. And she felt like it really destroyed her beauty. And she always, she had this image of herself as an ugly person. And it just affected her outlook, the way she carried herself. So finally, their family had plenty of money. And they hired this famous plastic surgeon to come and do surgery on her nose. He changes the contour of her nose and he gets done with his work. And the moment comes when they're going to take the bandages off and see the results. And when they do that, the doctor can see that the operation was a total success. That everything that made her nose look bad was gone. Her nose was different. And as soon as the incisions healed and there were some red marks there, as soon as that was healed, she was going to be a beautiful girl. So he holds up the mirror to the girl after he takes the bandage off for her to see how she looked. But she had it so embedded in her mind that she was an ugly person with a big nose. She saw herself in that mirror. She couldn't see any change when he showed her that mirror. And she broke into tears and cried out. She, I knew it wouldn't work. And it said it took six months for her to accept the fact that she was indeed an attractive person. It took her six months to finally accept that. And it wasn't until she accepted that fact that her image of herself changed and the way she carried herself changed. And it's the same with us. We have got to get rid of this embedded image that this is what we are and this is the way we always will be. And we need to think and meditate on this is what the Lord Jesus Christ says we are and how we can be. And until we do that, until we change our image of ourselves in our own minds and in our own spirits and have God help us along that way, we need his help, then we won't change and we will still be the same old person. Paul in the book of Ephesians, in writing to them, he had a challenge to change the Ephesians' identity. And I'll tell you why. Because their identity was steeped in the worship of this goddess Diana, or Artemis. Because you go back and read Acts chapter 19, it doesn't say this, but we know this historically, that the temple that was built to the great Diana, they talk about in Acts 19, it was so big and magnificent that it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And it affected everything in their daily life. Demetrius the silversmith, if you read Acts 19, he said that all of Asia and all of the world worship the great Diana. And he's all upset because Paul's taking their business away. Because these people are getting converted and they're not buying his little statues and images anymore. But like I said, I read commentaries and all of them agree that this worship, this occult worship of this goddess... Just like our worship of our Lord and our commitment to him should affect every aspect of our daily life. Well, their worship of this goddess Diana affected every aspect of their daily life. They were spirit, evil and good spirit conscious people. That is the way they went through the life. And as, an, as a result, magic and the occult were widely practiced in Ephesus. Widely practiced. Like they said, they thought these good and evil spirits were affecting everything they did. And the way you control those spirits in their mind was through magic. And so they practiced magic. And the books they owned, they know this historically, contained incantations, formulas, and rituals to deal with those spirits. And here's what Paul's dealing with. It was hard for those Christians to want to give up those books because that is the way they had lived and been brought up. And that's the way they've been taught to deal with these spirits all of their life. 
and to give up their identity with those spirits and their fear of those spirits and the power they had, that was a tough thing for Paul and the Lord to deal with. And we have the account. You all remember the account in Acts 19, though. One way God was able to, to start delivering these people out of these superstitions they had and this fear of spirits and that God, was he big enough to handle all this? Because that would have been a real fear for them, just like we have fears that somehow, somehow we know it, but is God really big enough to handle these circumstances we're in? But we know the story where those exorcists, those Jewish exorcists, the seven sons of Sceva, they go and they're going to try to command these spirits to come out of these person, right? And what happened? You know, they're going to use the name of Jesus just like they're going to use an incantation that they would have found at any of their books. And that spirit said what? He said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but tells those people, who are you? And it says he leaped on them and stripped them, and they ran out of that house naked and wounded. And so you go on and read that account, and what happens? It says then fear came on that whole city. And it says, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was magnified because through that demon's own mouth, it recognized the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says the word of the Lord was magnified. And do you know what we read next? People are realizing we don't have to be afraid of these spirits. That Christians, we have a power and authority in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what they did to show that? They burnt their books. They had a book burning. They don't need those incantations anymore. And that's what happened. So Paul had to, had to give them and say, hey, you've got a new identity. You don't have to be afraid of this occult past that you have. And so we read, this is what he wrote to them to help them. Say, and listen, our nation is steeped in the occult. You want to get in trouble with most Christians in America? Talk to them about it. It's really not a good idea for their kids to read Harry Potter. They will fight you over that. Or a lot of other, what I would consider occult and demonic movies that are really popular with a lot of Christians. So... Paul writes to these Ephesians, he says, hey, you don't need to be afraid because Jesus is raised from the dead. And here's what he writes to him in Ephesians 1. He's far above all principalities, powers, might, and dominion, and every name that is named. He's saying his name and his dominion and his power is greater than any spirit you've ever heard of or have been afraid of. Or this Artemis, this Diana. She can't control your life. The Lord Jesus Christ controls everything is what Paul is telling them greater than any good or evil spirit they might fear. And he, adds, he goes on to add in Ephesians 2, the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised up in the heavenlies. And he said, God has raised us up together with him and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So he's first told them that's where the Lord is. He's above everything, every evil spirit. And he says, not only that, but because of your union with him, you're raised up there with him. So we don't need to be afraid of any demonic activity we see. We have dominion over that. And that's what he's telling them. No fears. Jesus is greater than those spirits raised above, and you too. And then you think about what does he tell them in our great spiritual warfare chapter, Ephesians chapter 6. He's saying, you don't, you don't need your books anymore. You can burn them because God has given us armor, a complete armor. Because we will be wrestling. He's, he's not telling them, hey, you're not going to have any spiritual warfare. But he's saying God has given us com the complete armor, everything you need to be able to stand against the wiles of those demonic forces coming at you and the devil. He's got to change their whole way of thinking. Until I read this man's, I'd never thought about that. But Ephesians 
That's what Paul's dealing with in a big way because in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, 3, and 6, five times Paul talks to these Ephesians about their authority in heavenly places. Nowhere else in the New Testament is that language used. Because these people had an identity problem. They had a problem seeing that they had authority over these spirits. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You have got authority in the heavenly places, which is where they believe these spirits operated. God has given you spiritual authority. And then he goes on. This was where we're going to be parked at here lately. In chapter 4, verse 17, he also tells them, though, not only that, but you should not be living in the immorality of the city of Ephesus in the world like you always have. And here's the reason why. Because false worship of goddesses, all of it entails fornication and all kinds of immorality. And so they both go hand in hand. It's affecting all these spirits that they're worshiping. They affect that, but they also affect their morality because anybody that's read any ancient literature that talks about the gods they worship and all that, they basically let you do anything. Just about anything. And a lot of sexual immorality would go on. And so Ephesus, just like America, Paul's dealing with a, a nation that's steeped in the occult. And Ephesus was a big city, 250,000 people. That was a big city back then. Very prosperous in a very immoral city in its day. It was very immoral. And he's saying, Paul's telling them, you can't live like the rest of the Ephesians. You can't live like you used to. He's saying, henceforth, from here on out, there has got to be a change. Based on everything he said in his first three chapters, like I said. So, now we can read what portion we're going to be dealing with here for a while. So, in verse 17, Ephesians 4, 17... Here's what Paul's saying. He says, this I say, therefore, once again, he's picking up where he had left off in, in 4.1 because he kind of got sidetracked there talking about the church. He says, this I say, therefore, and I testify in the Lord that you henceforth from here on out. Here he uses that. Look how many times as we read, he uses the word walk, that you henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But he tells them, he says, you have not so learned Christ. That's not the, what the Lord taught you to live. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former lifestyle or conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, he goes on, putting away lying, speak. And here's where we're getting into, on the basis of everything he said, he's telling them this is how you should live. Very practical. Putting away lying, Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be you angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. And let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs. And let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. And let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. 
But not only the negative, he says, but be this, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. All of that he's saying there is based on what we looked in those first three chapters. He's saying when you walk through this city, when you walk through your daily life, don't walk the way you used to walk. There's got to be a new man, as the song goes, a new man walking in your shoes. You don't do the things that you used to do. And he says we need to put on that new man by faith who is created in true righteousness and holiness. And that's his word to us. As we walk through this life, we've got to be new people. So once again, we're back to 5.8. He says we were sometimes darkness in the past, but now we're light in the Lord. And he says walk as children of light. And a lot of times people say, man, how do I do this? How do I walk as a child of light? Because I still feel like I'm the old me. I still have a short fuse. I still have trouble getting out of bed every morning to get to work. <laughs> how do I do this? And you know, the answer is going to aggravate a lot of people. Because the answer is you do it by faith. You're like, ah, everything's faith. <laughs> Why is that always the answer? Well, that is the answer. <laughs> I mean, that's why understanding faith is critical. Listen, to you, the principles of faith for healing, <laughs> salvation, it applies to your holiness too. It's the same principles. And you ha we have to understand how those principles work or you'll always be trying to earn your salvation. So healing is just not a matter of I'm not going to a doctor. I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it. Just no more than holiness is. I'm just going to do my best to try not to be the wicked old person I've always am. But that's the way I really think I am. That's not what faith is. Walk as children of light, he says. And the Bible says that children of light, like it or not, we walk by faith. Don't we? <laughs> not by sight. That's what it says. Because in Romans 6:11, Paul tells them this. He says, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have to reckon, we have to count ourselves. It's an accounting term. It means you have to evaluate yourself, consider yourself to be dead unto sin. We talked last Sunday about old Peter on the water, and Peter did some reckoning. He did some accounting. When he was walking on that water. So as long as he reckoned on God's word and that what God's word is true, guess what he did? He walked on water by faith. Because Peter couldn't walk on water, could he? But when he believed God's word, guess what he had? He had a new identity. It's Peter the water walker. He did. He, didn't he have a new identity? He's doing something that he couldn't do. And the only reason he was able to do that was by faith in what God had said. That word come. Faith in that word. He's got a new identity. But what happened to him is, it's, here I'm saying it's all the principles are the same. But when he started looking at his natural circumstances, guess what he became? Just plain old dead weight Peter. And guess what happened? He began to sink. Because he's no longer trusting and obeying the words Lord. And so... God says to us, reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but if we look at the boisterous wind of our emotions and feelings and our past, we'll not be able to walk the way God says we should walk, will we? We'll sink every time. We'll sink under the weight of the way we think we are. <laughs> so another illustration. 
But there's a story of this, these people. I mean, they must have really lived back in the woods, back in the day, but they had never been to the big city. So this man's going to take his wife and his daughter and his young son and take them to the city, walk in the streets, and they are just in awe. They're walking around looking at all these great skyscrapers, and they're like, wow, Dad, I've never seen anything like this. They didn't have this in the cornfields back home. And so they see this glass door that spins around, a bunch of people going in there, and they're like, they just follow them on in there, and they walk in, and, man, they're looking at this place. This is wild. They're in a big shopping store, okay? <laughs> and here the wife and the daughter, they see this silver staircase that's moving up with people walking on it, and they walk over there, and they're just staring at that thing. They can't believe it. And the dad and the son, they walk on past them, and they go into another section, and they enter this area where there's all these doors, these... <laughs> shiny metal doors that they see and they've got all these buttons beside them and they're sitting there looking up top and they see these numbers that are moving and flashing up ahead and they're like wow what is going on there and as they're doing that as they're watching that all of a sudden this lady not dressed very well this this old lady with the coat on not very good looking and she's got a red shopping bag and she walks past them and as they're looking all of a sudden those doors open up and she walks in and they see this wooded room, small wooded room as those doors open up and they see that woman walk in there and it's, when she walks in there, the door's shut behind her. And they're like, what in the world is going on here? And they're standing there looking and they're asking themselves, what is happening in that room? What's she doing in there? Why would she want to go into such a tiny room? They're asking themselves. And so all of a sudden, after a minute or so, those doors just to suddenly open up again. And out walks this young, attractive, beautiful woman with a red shopping bag in her hand. And that father stares at that elevator and he doesn't take his eyes off that elevator and he says, son, go get your mother. So a change took place that man couldn't believe. And it seemed like a supernatural wonder that he wanted his wife to enjoy. I think it's more he wanted to enjoy his wife having that change. The point I'm trying to make is, just in the same way, God has done a supernatural wonder to us. Has he not? In the new birth. And once again, the scripture, if any man, any of us, be in Christ, we are new creations. We've got to trust what the Lord says. Old things. Old things are passed away. And he says, behold. He's back to that word, behold. Look, all things are become new. We've got to believe what he says when he says that. All things are become new. And friends, that is my message today. That is the message that I believe the Lord's given us. So in conclusion, you know, the Bible or Paul, they never ask us to live holy lives. Because you think about it. I, I started to say this earlier. When the Exodus happened, he didn't give them the Ten Commandments while they were in Egypt, did he? He, he brought them out, he redeemed them, he let them know that he was, they were his people, his special possession, and then he says, this is the way I want you to live. And that's what we're having here. God never tells us to live holy lives without first telling us what we are in Christ. Adopted, redeemed, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, loved by Christ. He tells us that first, and then he says on the basis of that, on the basis of you understanding your identity, Therefore, as we read in verse 17, this is the way we should all now live. This is our responsibility on the basis of all of that. But listen, we can't have one without the other. So because we are adopted, united, and empowered by the Spirit, because of that, we can and should be holy people, shouldn't we? 
Only people. The mistake I think a lot of us make and, and tend to want to make is we have to live perfect lives to be adopted and to be justified. If anybody's perfect in here, then I will gladly, you can do all the preaching from here on out because I would need to hear it, as they say. But we don't have to be perfect. We just have to recognize our need and come to the Lord Jesus in repentance. And so I would say if you've done that, purposed in your heart, that you're going to keep your vow to the Lord. I'm going to serve you. I'm not looking to, to live in sin. I'm planning on keeping my commitment by your grace the rest of my days. You know, if you've done that, and you're staying with him for better or for worse, and the worse will be on our side, not his, but we're going to stay with him for better or for worse, and we're going to stay with that commitment, then I would say I would encourage all of us, we need to see ourselves as God sees us, redeemed by his blood, adopted into his family, elected from all eternity, empowered by the Holy Spirit within that he's given us, loved and cared for by our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we need to doubt that? That's the way we can walk and live. But most importantly, we need to see that we are sons and daughters of God, that he has purchased to live a holy and blameless life. That's the most thing, that we are new creations. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We just thank you for all the things you've done for us, Lord, that you've redeemed us, elected us, filled us with your Holy Spirit. You've called us your sons and daughters, that you say you'll chastise us in love like a father would chastise his children if we need it, and that truly you are able to keep us from falling. And not only able, Lord, I believe you're willing to keep us from falling. And I just ask that you'll make that real, the things we've We've said today, Lord, real to all of our hearts and all of our minds, and then we can just carry this forward as our days ahead and when we walk with you and just walk more closely with you. And I just ask that we'll be encouraged by that, Lord, that you do love us, your hand is on us, you're dealing with us, and your spirit is beginning to stir us to walk closer to you as a church. And I thank you that you're doing that. And we just pray all that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.